Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, September 7th, and today I talked to Bill Cohan about my favorite workout routine, Peloton. But it turns out the fitness company has some health issues. Bill explains how the company has misfired and whether it might be acquired by someone else. And later on, Julia Alexander stops by to tell us about the 25 million people who watched the premiere of The Rings of Power on Amazon. Just because that number sounds bigger than the 10 million who watched The House of the Dragon premiere on HBO, Julia explains why that one number doesn't rule them all. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Uh, if it's Wednesday, I like to get on the Peloton and do a harder Peloton than I usually do. I go with like Alex or Olivia, go hard. I feel like that's a good hump day move. I'm joined today by fellow Peloton savant, Bill Cohan. Bill, welcome. Peter, great to see you. I'm loving the pastel. Thank you. This is a, I'm wearing a gecko Hawaii shirt which is a like a 90s throwback. <laughs> but Bill, uh, I want to talk to you about Peloton today, um, not just because I'm a power user, but you've written about this company off and on over the last year. You know, like a lot of companies popped in a huge way during the pandemic. Peloton, its value peaked right before Christmas 2020. And now the company's lost something like 90% of its value. What is the state of play with Peloton? I mean, are they trying to get acquired? Are they still a really valuable company that was just overheated? You know, I feel like for all the Puck listeners who use Peloton, you know, it's not going to go away. Like, people love it. Oh, definitely it could go away. Any company can go away. I think uh, Peloton's proving uh, its bona fides in that department. It's, as you said, down 90% in the last year. So that's really not a great track record. Now, Obviously, it was way overvalued, way overhyped during the pandemic. And I think basically the company was utterly mismanaged by John Foley, the previous CEO, who built up inventories uh, way beyond what they should have been and seemed to be totally mesmerized by the idea of a, a social network being created by all these Peloton users who would think, you know, they would love nothing more than to, you know, get together and hang out and socialize together IRL as well as digitally. I think really what Peloton is and was, was a, you know, fancy stationary exercise bike with some bells and whistles. And like every stationary exercise bike that's ever come along, people get hyped up about it. And then the fad passes and, you know, you're left with a financial disaster. So what what I would say is that the really good product, it's fans really like, but what it's not is this sort of newfangled social media network slash dating app where, you know, everybody's going to Peloton off happily into the sunset. So a really good product and a really bad public company. But I, I think the social aspect of it is interesting. Um, like Katie uses the Peloton too and like has friends on there and she can see what ride they did. I don't really do that, but I do like the music. Like I like certain instructors because they play certain music I like. I might just be in the bubble. I like the product a lot, but people love Barry's Bootcamp. 
People love yoga. People love all different kinds of exercises. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're just one of many choices that people have, especially now that they're not stuck in their houses. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's just a function of how much the thing gets hyped. You know, essentially, you know, Wall Street just went crazy for this product and thought that retail investors would too and pumped it up. John Foley got over his skis in it. I mean, the whole thing just became uh, really uh, overextended. If they didn't try to hype the stock, if they didn't like try to hype the product, if they didn't try to like hype up this opportunity to like see the people you exercise with IRL as some sort of great new social networking slash dating app, it would have been fine. But it just, you know... They, they it got way overhyped, fully just like, I remember him speaking at a Vanity Fair conference in 2019, just after it had gone public. I mean, just completely hubristic and thinking that his shit didn't stink. You know, when that starts happening, then who gets burned, right? Who gets burned is uh, employees who get fired, shareholders who just buy into it and then watch the value of their stock go down 90%. The new CEO, Barry McCarthy, you know, is a talented guy. He did great things at Spotify. He's a real uh, innovator when it comes to raising capital and thinking about the capital raising process. But I just don't understand what that has to do with anything with what Peloton needs right now, which is a turnaround expert. You know, somebody who's going to figure out a way to create a real company out of this, sell down like their whatever hundreds of millions of dollars in inventory that's just sitting in warehouses. They're trying to sell off their Pelotons at the same time that other customers are trying to sell off their Pelotons. I mean, you're just creating an economic disaster at the company, which leads me to conclude that really the only successful exit here uh, and satisfactory ending will be uh, if the company is sold, and it should be sold. It may not be worth $3 billion, which is what the market value is now. Of course, it wasn't worth, you know, whatever, $80 billion at its peak. I mean, that was just absurd. I mean, why couldn't it just be a nice exercise bike? This is the thing, like, you know more about companies than I do, but I feel like I see companies sometimes get cocky, they step outside of their lane, they make products that there isn't really demand for and like Peloton made like treadmills. It's like, what? No one's going to get a Peloton treadmill. Like, and I, I like, and that's expensive. That's a lot of hardware. And, and the bike's expensive. And so is the monthly subscription. Yeah. And so right away you're limiting. I mean, how many people, what is it? 2,500 bucks for the bike. My friend Bob in Boston, he just has a regular exercise bike that he bought like on Amazon or used and just pulls up Peloton workouts on his phone and like, you can't do the dial and the electronic stuff, but he kind of doesn't care. It's just like a cardio workout and he plugs his headphones in and listens to the music and that's it. Um, and so the last thing I want to ask you, Bill, uh, the path is they get acquired. Do they get acquired by a health and fitness company? Do they get acquired by a tech company? Like who is the suitor? The ultimate suitor, of course, would be Apple because, you know, they could connect it with their other health features that they have on their, you know, the Apple Watch where they're already monitoring your health. It could be just some some other way to get people uh, to can be concerned about their health and aware of their health and their various vital signs. I think I think it's a natural for Apple, but you know, whether it's worth three billion dollars. I mean, Apple has 
been known to, you know, with Beats to buy, you know, branded companies, you know, and add them to their sphere. You know, Apple, probably the best buyer, but there are any number of other fitness companies out there who could also buy it. Maybe it's overpriced at the moment. Obviously for Apple, it would be, you know, a fly speck on an elephant. Another fitness company, you know, I once sold a company called Life Fitness, which makes exercise equipment to to Brunswick. There are plenty of buyers out there. I think it needs to be turned around first, unless you're just Apple and just do it and write off the inventory and who cares because you're Apple and you're so huge anyway, it doesn't matter. But but a real other competitor in the in the fitness industry space is going to want this thing to be turned around or leave the inventory behind, just sort of buy the assets of this company. Maybe it has to go through chapter 11. I don't know. Yeah, no, there's a home for this, but the previous management should frankly be put in management jail for overhyping this thing, believing their own bullshit and creating a company uh, when it's really just a product and overhyping it and really singeing the investors post IPO. Real talk from Bill about Peloton. <laughs> All right, Bill, I will see you at Soul Cycle when I come to New York. Yeah, that's right. Uh, which has been liquidated too, I think. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we'll see you in the empty retail space that was once Soul Cycle. All right, Bill, thank you so much. Okay, take care. When we come back, Ben Landy sits down with Julia Alexander to dive into the huge numbers for the Rings of Power premiere on Amazon. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Alexander, our streaming data expert at Puck and director of strategy at Parrot Analytics, to talk about what else the ultimate streaming video grudge match, House of the Dragon versus the Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. Julia, how are you? Good, good. How are you? How was your long weekend? It was nice. I caught up on both of these shows, and I assume that you are watching both of them too, and have extremely diplomatic and even-handed opinions about both of them. Yeah, that's a fair assumption. But I wanted to bring you on to talk about the numbers, because this weekend, Amazon announced that its Lord of the Rings prequel was watched by 25 million people globally in its first day, which sounds on the surface like a lot more than the 10 million or so viewers that the Game of Thrones prequel had on its first day, and definitely more than the 20 million that House of the Dragon had in its total first week. But those are the big headlines. I assume you're going to tell me why that's not the whole story. Yeah. So the thing with streaming, which like would be the name of my autobiography, the thing with streaming in general is that there's always a bunch of asterisks. There's always a bunch of like, this thing happened, but we have to acknowledge that we don't have the full picture. So if we look at just those numbers that you just said alone, it's really easy to declare the Rings of Power the victor. It has it had 2.5 times as many viewers, right? Like it had 25 to House of the Dragons, 10 million. Except when you break it down further, that's when those asterisks come into play. So what do we know about these numbers? We know that House of the Dragon, that initial 10 million, which was actually like 9.987, but we round up to 10 million for Zaz, um, for the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery. So those 10 million account for U.S. viewers using both HBO and HBO Max. Now, we know that as of the first quarter in 2022, which is the last quarter that 
Warner Media as a company owned by AT&T reported earnings. There were about 40, I believe it's 48.6 million US HBO and HBO Max subscribers uh, in the United States. That didn't include for their, their global counterpart. So if we actually look at it, about 20.6% of HBO and HBO Max's total audience tuned in for House of the Dragon within that first, you know, first hour, first day that they reported those numbers. If we look at Amazon and the way that Amazon reported it, Amazon said that 25 million accounts or million viewers tuned in to watch the show within the first 24 hours. But the last reported publicly uh, Amazon Prime number they released, 200 million members in about 240 countries and regions around the world. So of if 25 million of those people tuned in out of the 200 million to watch the Rings of Power, that equates to about 12.5% of their total user base tuning in. So actually, by those numbers alone, House of the Dragon probably had the stronger debut, definitely in the United States. But we also don't know how Amazon is counting those views. We don't know how the breakdown of those views came about geographically from a distribution standpoint. So it's really, really hard to paint these as apples to apples as we so very much want to do in the, in the press and in the industry and in the trades. We very much want to be able to say like, this is the victor and this is not, but it's apples to bananas. It is never going to be an apples to apples comparison unless we entirely change and rectify how companies are allowed to report their numbers. So bottom line, both these shows are performing well. HBO maybe even a little bit better here, but it's sort of too complicated to say. The big question, of course, as you were gesturing at is like, what's the point? Can you compare these services at all? Because HBO is an entertainment company within a media conglomerate that owns a streaming service and another streaming service, and it's going to meld those two, HBO Max and Discovery Plus, into one streaming service in the future. And the other side, you've got Amazon, which owns Amazon Prime. And the ultimate goal of that is, I don't know, to, to create like an entertainment platform moat around its e-commerce platforms so that you stay there to buy your dog food and toilet paper instead of going to Walmart. I mean, these two companies fundamentally have very different strategies, right? 1,000%. And I'm glad that you said the first part, like, let's just get it out of the way, right? Both these shows are successful shows. It's not like we're coming out and saying one show is a total letdown. Both of these shows, one based on a hugely popular Lord of the Rings IP with a massive fandom. The other built on the Game of Thrones IP with the massive fandom. These shows were never not going to perform. I think what's inherently interesting about what you're saying is to look at what these shows really need in order to succeed for both of these companies. And that really constitutes defining what these platforms are. HBO Max, the goal for House of the Dragon is to bring in additional subscribers. And then what HBO Max is supposed to do that HBO now could not do is keep those subscribers engaged. The idea is to bring in as many customers as possible and then keep them because it's much harder and much more expensive to acquire new customers over and over and over again than it is to keep customers retained, make sure the value of that platform is really understood. So that way, when you do increase prices, there's a little bit of grievance, but people are willing to say like, okay, I will, I will pay more for this. If we look at HBO Max, you know, when they had HBO Now, which then became HBO Max, the big issue with that platform was actually what we dubbed the Game of Thrones effect. It was Game of Thrones every season beginning in the fifth season in 2015 brought in a ton of subscribers. I mean, they were adding like, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers into millions of subscribers with that show. 
But when those seasons ended, they saw huge churn. Those customers were canceling because they, much as they might have loved The Sopranos or The Wire or Sex and the City or whatever it might be, they weren't going to pay $15 a month extra just to keep access to that. HBO as a cable channel has done a fantastic job really ensuring that there's a consistent line of originals and of really strong hits to keep people engaged. But at the time when they're introducing streaming and streaming has never been easier to cancel and to sign up for, a lot of people were saying, oh, I don't really need this in 2015. I have my show that I like. I'm going to go spend that money on Netflix instead, which is cheaper. So HBO Max is designed to now keep them. Amazon Prime Video is a really interesting service because outside of the United States, it's a huge growth driver for the company. So people can subscribe to Amazon Prime Video by itself. It's a way to engage a lot of people in regions where e-commerce is just is not a big cultural thing. So Prime Video is a huge business for the company. You know, but also the question around Prime Video is what is Prime Video? It was really hard to answer. It was the place where you kind of watched almost like Netflix your favorite shows and movies that were not owned by Amazon. Amazon would license them. They would have the ability to do it. And you'd go, cool, I'm going to watch it there. It's included with my Prime subscription. I think with both the MGM acquisition, which they're going to turn a lot of those old IPs into new series and films for them to try and really build that brand. And with Lord of the Rings, I think the goal is to really establish Prime Video as an actual dominant player in the streaming service, not just as an add-on to Amazon. But from a business point of view, the goal is, yes, to engage those customers beyond Lord of the Rings, keep them on the website so they can charge higher ad rates. And then also, to your exact point, get them to buy dog food or books or toilet paper or whatever else that they wanted they wanted to pick up. Yeah, and it, it says something interesting about the streaming landscape and the power of existing IP and the power of franchises that both HBO and Amazon are so committed to these shows. I'm not sure if people are aware that there was an entire other Game of Thrones prequel that was planned, that was greenlit. There was a pilot that was shot for like $30 million. And HBO executives scrapped it because they felt like it wasn't good enough. It wasn't prestige enough. It was going to hurt the franchise and the brand. So they started over. And of course, Amazon famously spent a quarter billion dollars buying the rights to Lord of the Rings to make this show. So they are really pot committed here. I mean, even beyond the data that you're talking about, the importance to bringing in subscribers and to churn, there's been a massive financial commitment and a cultural one too, that they've really planted their flag on these properties. Right. And this is something that they know they need. When they look at the players in the space, when you look at, an, you know, Disney is still the strongest player when Disney can put out a Star Wars or a Marvel thing and it dominates attention, it dominates what people care about in this kind of cultural zeitgeist moment, you know that you need properties to compete with that. If we think about the earnings slide David Zaslav put out when he was going over their plans for HBO Max, when he put out that slide, he looked at a bunch of his major IP franchises that they wanted to lean on. It was Harry Potter, it was DC, but it was also Game of Thrones. You know, the idea was to have a big live action show that was going to pick up. The idea was to have an animated spinoff that was going to really keep that audience engaged. And they need that because in this kind of economy, this attention economy, in order to really succeed and to build a flywheel business that creates this kind of Ouroboro revenue that you, you really want, you need to dominate in games. You need to dominate with merch. You need to dominate social platforms. You need to dominate. And then of course, number one being engagement via consumption on shows for your actual platform. So I think you know whether or not it works on that level, to me is the more important question, more so than how many people watch the shows. Like people are going to watch the shows. They're huge shows. They're marketed everywhere. Lord of the Rings had huge banner placements everywhere and takeovers on amazon.com, which is one of the most frequented sites in the world. Like it's, 
nobody, it was not, people were not going to watch these shows. The question is, the revenue that they make for, from these shows years down the line and months down the line, like, does that actually fit what they wanted to do from a business perspective? And I don't, we don't know yet. Well, I'll spare you my personal reviews of both these shows. Maybe we can put that in a bonus installment for subscribers. But Julia, um, you just had a piece up on Puck.News about this. That's there for subscribers and in your newsletter, What I'm Hearing Plus, if people want to read more. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 